Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Three thousand miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. To the end. That the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. I earnestly entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary change, which may well I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste
You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project. Introduction, Part 3. A simple Google search of why did World War I happen yields some 9.7 million results, all of which vary in accuracy and accessibility. Something which nearly all of these resulting explanations do say, though, is a phrase which, while simple on paper, tells us a great deal about the topic as a whole. The outbreak of the Great War, these sources note, is a subject which remains controversial to this day. Controversial? How can something which occurred over a century ago still be controversial? To add to that, how can a question which concerns powers that no longer exist still be in any way contentious? Comparing it to other key events or incidents in world history suggests that maybe historians or laypeople care more about the outbreak of the Great War than they should. Isn't it time to move on? That's the thing, though. There is no debate like that which revolves around the eruption of the Great War, because there never has been and there never will be anything like the Great War ever again. 20th century history is so often consumed by the image of one man, Adolf Hitler, and the crimes he perpetuated and permitted others to perpetuate in the Second War. For some pupils and students, the Second War is all that they really ever know, and because the person of Hitler remains so darkly captivating, the Second World War continues to be written about, researched, dramatised, and explained more than any other event in history. At the core of this story of the Second War is a simple beginning, middle, and end. The causes for the outbreak of the Second World War is no mystery, no great debate. Any search on why World War II happened will probably be greeted with a message from Google saying, Are you serious? It was Hitler. Haven't you heard? How have you not heard? There is no debate. There is no controversy. And unless you venture into some very unsavory places on the dark web, there is no conspiracy or mystery about why the war began and ended as it did. How, completely unlike the Second War, is the First, then. Where the Second World War contains a straightforward tale of cause and effect which the whole family can grasp, the First World War contains schools of thought for explaining the outbreak of the war alone. Revisionist, post-revisionist, the Fritz Fischer School, the inevitable catastrophe school, the helpless world going off the edge of a cliff school, and more recently, the Christopher Clark Sleepwalkers School. Some of you may know that I discovered for myself exactly how animated some people can still become about this question. While perusing Twitter, I managed to become involved in this debate, and before I knew it, I was arguing with a British professor and his loyal students and followers about the extent of German war guilt and its role in causing the war. It was then that I realised, this happened about a year ago or so, to my shock and disappointment just how fixated on finding a simple cause and effect formula for the outbreak of the First World War some persons and professionals are. It was bananas to me that this academic was attempting to argue for the most straightforward, simplistic explanation that existed, and that he continued to inform me in no uncertain terms that I was wrong, and that my opinions were of the minority. I could not quite believe that this well-educated man could accept the quote-unquote mainstream version of events, that which often graces our school textbooks, to explain why the First World War broke out. It was Germany's fault. Germany started it in 1914, just as she did again in 1939. 
This explanation is acceptable to so many because it is comforting. It suggests a rational cause-and-effect formula similar to 1939, which people can get behind. More comfortingly still, it ensures that all the blame falls not on our ancestors, but on those dastardly Germans who were evidently bound to disturb the peace from the beginning. Something which was almost as grating as the condescending behaviour of that academic and his followers was the fact that, if we look purely at the facts, these people stand on solid ground. Germany did invade Belgium, she did commit atrocities against the Belgian citizenry, and she did use poison gas before anyone else. It is possible and rather easy to find historians willing to write that the First World War was Germany's fault, and as these views are parroted over time, the result becomes something of an echo chamber, where it is very hard to argue against, and especially, as I learned, with only the 140 characters that Twitter permits. This little anecdote serves to demonstrate exactly what any revisionist historian is immediately up against when they confront the question so often tackled by other historians. The question is controversial, and it evidently contains legions of people already determined to fight for their viewpoint. Solid evidence exists to support the conventional viewpoint, and depending on where you go, one can be pilloried for attempting to argue against the grain. Thankfully though, I went to a university where we were taught to play devil's advocate, to think differently, and to find evidence to support our findings. A quick survey of what's out there in terms of source materials and books, etc., reveals that many other individuals were not satisfied with the conventional explanation of Germany started it, and tried to find their own way. Some of these figures found greater fault to lie with the Russians, the British, the Austrians, the French, or other powers than with the Germans. Others found time to criticise the Allied powers for escalating the tensions, for failing to see things from Germany's perspective, for failing to communicate properly, for failing to appreciate how important the concept of honour was to the flagging Austro-Hungarian Empire, or for refusing to consider peaceful resolution before conflict. These historians have consulted the source materials in various languages and delivered a counterpoise to those folks content to accept the conventional narrative, and they bring with them an interesting challenge. If the conventional narrative is so straightforward, and if the done and dusted formula of Germany started it is so widely accepted, and there's no room for argument, then why have so many professional historians and laymen alike managed to become best-selling authors challenging this very narrative and shining greater light on the more complex questions. The different schools of thought which help explain the outbreak of the war force us to make a choice, but they do not hold our hand. All of them make assumptions, and none of them are completely watertight, otherwise there would be no need for an alternative school or viewpoint to rise up in response. When I first encountered the story of the First World War, all the way back in early 2013, I resided very much on the side of the conventional, It was Germany's fault, I gathered, because even though certain actors were liable to be blamed, it was the Germans who attacked first. It was the Germans who attacked the Russians and French in 1914. Because preemptive war in 1914 was believed to be better than a war fought later on in the decade, the Kaiser had said as much after all. Wilhelm II had held a war council a few years before, and here was clear evidence that he had planned the war against the Entente all along. Here was proof that Germany's bid for world domination had deep roots and was undeniably sneaky and ruthless in its execution. A greatly simplified version of events, I left this episode of my First World War series up in the feed, and you may well have come across it already, to serve as an example of how far I've come. 
My critical analysis skills needed more time to develop. My understanding of the era needed more time to mature, and my appreciation for the different nuances of the human condition required more time to grow before I could actually do that question justice. For the July Crisis Anniversary Project, a series which I've mentioned about 78 times already, I approached the question of the war's outbreak from a very different perspective to that which I had taken a year and a half before. It was a startling learning experience for me to discover that the alternative to the conventional explanation was not just out there, but that it was reasonable, multi-layered, and contained several miniature schools of thought within it. Nothing was ever so straightforward to me again. I felt in some ways like I had been duped, drawn into the watered-down version of history which had been so palatable precisely because it was so accessible, familiar, and easy to understand. The alternative to the easy conventional explanation for the First World War breaking out involved a great deal more work. It involved assessing the actions of each individual, of each power, within the context of the early 20th century. It involved not demonising any actor for their actions, but appreciating why they acted and what they hoped to gain through their actions. It left me reading with a set of conclusions that certainly did not fit snugly into a corner of a textbook and could not be explained after a 10-second conversation. It was here that I learned how important context was for the historical debate. It was here that I learned exactly what history meant, and I took these lessons into my master's, into my published book, into my PhD application, receiving plaudits along the way. I had gotten closer than ever before to understanding why those figures acted as they did in 1914, but I had by no means cracked the code, and my critical flaw was that I assumed, because my eyes had been so opened, everyone else would be so amenable to changing their minds too. This brings us back to that Twitter conversation I had about the discussion of the war's outbreak. Now that I was out of my bubble, I found it impossible to go back in and to ignore so much of the challenging, daring new works that attempted to recast the conflict in different terms and present the actors in different ways. I also found it impossible, and still do find it impossible, to take those historians and laymen seriously who contend that the conventional explanation for the outbreak of the war is the correct one. How, I wonder, can these people argue this, considering the wealth of material which has emerged from the school of history even over the last decade? Yet as I said, the most grating thing about that conventional position, and the ignorance it breeds, is that it does come armed with some pre-existing facts. Yes, Germany technically did start the First World War, because Germany technically did declare war on its rivals first. That is impossible to deny, but it's where we ask why Germany declared war first, and we throw out the conventional answer to this question that is, well, because she wanted to take over the world, or something to that effect, that we then come closer to answering the question of why the war actually began in the first place. To answer this question, we have to go back to Germany's allies, specifically Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary was Germany's most important ally in 1914, and she had long been entering down a path of decline. This is generally put forward as the explanation behind Vienna's foolish ultimatum to the Serbs on the 23rd of July 1914, following the assassination by Serbian terrorists of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That process we easily know. It was the spark, the straw which broke the camel's back and every other cliché we can think of. So often we say this without much consideration of what it actually meant. Why were the Austrians so determined, so anxious, to act forcefully and aggressively towards the Serbians. What was Austria afraid of if it did not act? 
Was there any justice in the Austrian claim that the scheme to assassinate their Archduke reached up to the top of the Serbian government? Was Austria not entitled to some justice for the murder of its heir? If not, why not? And if it was entitled to justice, what was the best way for justice to be sought? These are all critically important questions, but I would wager that if you're coming to this project fresh and not having listened to the July Crisis Project, these questions may be questions you've never really thought of before. Normally the Austrians are the bad guys, so the assassination of their imperial heir by the plucky Serbian nationalists is sometimes even presented favourably. Today the place in Sarajevo where Gavrilo Princip shot and killed, poor old Franz, is enshrined forever and marked by two brass footprints on the pavement close to the spot where the most terrible war in history was touched off. But why? Why couldn't the Austrians just swallow the insult and leave everyone in peace? Well, they couldn't swallow it because it was too great an insult to swallow. Simply put, the Austrians believed that if they did not act with force, then their already shaky hold over so many south-central European nationalities would be exposed as even more brittle than ever before. Now this, don't forget, was what the Serbian terrorists wanted. They wanted to shatter Austrian hegemony in the Balkans by striking at the heart of her imperial family. It is certainly debatable that those Serbs wanted a world war to follow their actions. To demonstrate that it hadn't lost at all, the Austrian government became fixated on directly challenging Serbia for the sake of its national honour and security, terms which were inseparably bound up together and which had been for decades. Naturally, before acting, it was necessary to gain approval from the German ally to act. This was shortly done and the German government gave the infamously irresponsible blank check seal of approval which permitted Vienna to act quickly to crush the Serbs before any larger conflict could result from this regional spat. Note here that the Germans did not want the Austro-Serb conflict to flare up into Armageddon. What they wanted and what they believed was going to happen was a short, sharp war to destroy the Serbs, since this was exactly what the doctor ordered for the sake of Austrian security and prestige, not a long and costly conflict. In Germany it was believed that Austria would hurry along with the process and attack within a few days, presenting a fait accompli to the world and occupying Belgrade, which was just within the Serbian border, before the Serbian's large Russian friend could even lift a finger. However, while the Germans had given the Austrians carte blanche to act as they pleased against the Serbs, what nobody in Berlin could have imagined was exactly how plodding, ineffectual, and above all, late, the Austrian response would be. Thanks to a combination of factors, including the problem of much of its army being on harvest leave, the Hungarians refusing to play ball as well, the Austrians didn't formulate a response to the Serbian assassination until the 23rd of July. By now the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was a distant memory, and everyone assumed that the Austrians had forgotten about the sordid affair and just moved on. But Vienna had not moved on. Instead, she had moved so slowly and ineffectively that few would be able to believe their eyes, least of all the Germans, who were meant to have been their allies. The Austrians had elected to humiliate the Serbs with an impossible list of demands, an ultimatum, and then attack once the ultimatum had been refused. This would make up for the fact that the cause for war had slipped from the minds of most by late July, and since Serbia would be seen to reject Vienna's moves, the protocol would be understood by the Concert of Europe. But it was not understood. Instead, rumours of the intended Austrian action actually leaked out, 
reaching the Germans last, and the Serbians did accept the ultimatum, rejecting only the most extreme demands. The Austrian action aroused sympathy for the Serbs as well, because the Serbs appeared to be trying to keep the peace, and it also made Austria look like a bully, when in reality, Austria was just proceeding at a glacial pace thanks to the inner paralysis of her government and the confusion amongst her ministers. With her ultimatum largely accepted though, the reasonable thing to do would have been to accept the Serbian response and for Austria to climb down from the ledge. Had Vienna done that, there would have been no war. However, so fixated on the need to save face had the Austrians become, and so assured of German support did her leaders feel, that the Austrians proceeded to blunder into conflict without any real sense of purpose or, well, sense. War was declared on Serbia on the 28th of July, a full month after Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated, following a process which made Austria appear even more disorganised, pathetic and confused than she had appeared following the assassination, where once the swift justice meted out by an illustrious Habsburg family member against anarchist scoundrels in the wild Balkans may well have roused sympathy of its own, could have been self-contained and certainly would not have drawn Britain in, Instead, Austria-Hungary acted belligerently, aggressively, and worst of all, guys, a whole month late. By the time she declared war on Serbia on the 28th of July 1914, Serbia's greatest ally, Russia, was already in the latter phases of her mobilisation, and the path towards a world war which the Austrians and Germans had never even wanted had been irreversibly entered down. Understanding this Austrian hiccup in communication and planning forms a vital part of explaining why the First World War happened, and it also serves to demonstrate the lack of an inherent will to pursue a world conspiracy led by the Central Powers to take over the continent through military might. The blank check given by the Kaiser in early July, a week after the assassination of the Archduke, was of course irresponsible, and led the Austrians to believe that the Germans would support them no matter what. What the Kaiser had had in mind when offering this support was not a world war scheme, though, but a fait accompli, an act, in other words, which would teach the Serbs a lesson before anyone could challenge the coup. The morality of this plan is, of course, questionable, but again, we have to see it from Austria's perspective. She had been denied justice from the Entente, she was beleaguered at home, and a failure to respond would, according to the doctrine of the era, lead to weakness and to collapse in her security. The time for talking was over, and it was time to use force. Germany's government was in agreement, but not to the extent that the Austrians believed. Kaiser Wilhelm II would have been aghast at the notion that a world war should be launched in the name of Austria's revenge. The coup which he had envisioned, that quick coup, was worth the risk, in early July, of carte blanche support, but Berlin never seems to have imagined that Vienna would so bottle its revenge as to leave its flanks exposed on every side, that being the military, the public, the societal, the industrial and the organisational. If Germany was guilty of anything, she was guilty of manslaughter. Her unconditional support for Austria effectively guaranteed the Great War, and because she never accounted for her allies' shortcomings, her leaders were, to use the professional wrestling term, booked into a corner. Yet, we need to preface this by saying that Germany did not want to fight the Great War, and neither did the Austrians, and both professional military planners, with few exceptions, believed that the task of combating the Triple Entente on the battlefield was an impossible one. 
This brings us away from the Austrians and back to the German chestnut, so often upheld to explain the German behaviour, the Schlieffen Plan. The Schlieffen Plan is justifiably used to explain why Germany attacked France before making any concerted effort to attack the Russians. It was, so German High Command believed, the recipe for a successful two-front war. What is often not said about the Schlieffen Plan was that it was believed by many in Berlin to be a flawed, outdated plan, but that it was the only plan that they had. So often the Schlieffen Plan is mischaracterized as a terrifying, formidable plan of invasion, but this hides the key fact that the whole thing was arranged from a position of inherent weakness rather than strength. It was, let's be honest, stupid in the extreme to attack Belgium in order to get to France. It was risky to focus all attention on one sphere before moving to the other. It was asking a lot to depend so completely on the tale which trained timetables and the precise marching patterns of professional soldiers told the high command. Only when relying on the Schlieffen plan in its full form was it realised just how inadequate the whole thing was, but even before then, when it was too late, rumblings about the dangers it posed and the lack of options it afforded Germany once the levers had been pulled were underlined. So we need to be careful not to mischaracterise the Schlieffen plan, but we should always keep it in mind, because its cold, unflinching calculations come far closer to the image of the German effort than any belligerent, domineering plan for total domination of the continent did. Born out of necessity and their perceived strategic disadvantages, the Schlieffen plan forced Germany to commit to a world war and nothing else. Berlin could support swift, shattering military coups, just like that which she expected to see launched against the dangerous Serbia, or it could sponsor a continent-wide conflict which would decide the fate of empires. There was no middle ground, and because of this, so much was at stake, and nothing could be left to chance. If any calculation was allowed to become obsolete, then the entire German war plan would be void, and the Germans would be left in grave danger with an unwinnable war on several fronts. Time was of the essence, but time was not the only quality up for consideration. The millions of men in military service would have to be called to the colours in a complex process known as mobilisation. The larger the country, and the larger the numbers of men at hand, the longer this process would take. This, of course, was what recommended the Schlieffen Plan to Berlin in the first place. Russia took the longest to act, and so Russia should be attacked after France, once the French had been fallen upon with the full force of the German Empire, and the Russians were still mobilising. On paper this plan made sense, but... What happened if a wrench was thrown into the works? What happened if, for example, the Russians got ahead of their mobilisation timetable, thereby throwing the Schlieffen Plan and Germany's conception of the war it had always imagined it would fight into flux? This was indeed a problem, but it was far from the only one. In the era of 1914, declaring war was a process which had been codified so as to make the whole endeavour more humane and supposedly more civilised. One could not, for instance, launch an invasion of one's neighbour unannounced. That neighbour had to be given a fighting chance, so to speak, and be provided with an opportunity either to answer the grievance of its rival or to parry the threat this rival posed by moving its own forces into position. These questions, trivial and ridiculous though they seem to us now in light of what the 20th century revealed about undeclared wars, were discussed at length during the two Hague conferences aimed at making war more humane and reducing the propensity for conflict. 
1899 and 1907, these two conferences were hosted in the Dutch capital, and ostensibly they aimed at reducing tension and the possibility for conflict in an arming world. The Germans paid close attention to these conferences, as they believed everyone else was doing the same, and accepted that if any warlike actions were to be undertaken against their neighbours, then a declaration of war would first have to be made. Berlin accepted that it could not, even in the context of national survival, fall upon the French, Russians, or even the Belgians in a secret war revealed only by the presence of their soldiers on foreign soil. No matter what the public relations penalties may be, and this became critically important later, war must be declared. You might be able to see where we're going with this now. For the Schlieffen Plan's calculations to remain viable, it was imperative that the Russians did not mobilise themselves, and that the Germans declared war first. It was above the imagination of the Germans, either during the conception of the Schlieffen Plan, or during the inception of the Hague Conferences, that their neighbours might enact warlike measures, such as the mobilisation of their armed forces, without themselves declaring war first. In the circumstances of the 1914 era, mobilisation meant war. Various war scares in recent years past had demonstrated that mobilisation was the clearest indication that one was about to attack. War could not be had without mobilisation. It was a critically important part of the whole process, of course, and it was also immensely expensive, so it was quite rare for a state to enter upon the mobilisation process without actually going all the way. Because of this, when someone did mobilise, it generally meant that they intended to go all the way. Since mobilisation was an attack, therefore, in and of itself, it was also an act of war, and a declaration of war must precede it. The Russians did not follow this logic, though, because evidently it would put them at a grave disadvantage. Mobilisation had been begun partially and in secret as soon as the ultimatum was delivered by the Austrians to the Serbs on the 23rd of July, and from that moment, whisper and rumour led the Germans to become deeply vexed. It was difficult to be certain whether the Russians were in fact mobilising, but as their activities increased and more confirmations leaked out, it became apparent that the Russians had indeed been preparing their forces for war, ostensibly to defend their Serbian ally against the Austrians. Thanks to the tardy Austrian march towards military confrontation, the Russians had had more than enough time to prepare their response. Only the Germans, it seemed, had been left in the dark, and now, in the final days of July 1914, the sheer extent of the danger was clear. Now that the Russians had a full week of mobilisation already done and dusted, the Schlieffen plan was a full week behind schedule. Germany would have even fewer days to defeat France than before, and the timetable went from difficult and tight to desperate and impossible. The longer the German war planners dallied now, the more and more obsolete the Schlieffen plan, their only plan, would become, and consequently, the more endangered they believed they would be. Therefore, acting with what Christopher Clark called a misguided sense of legal propriety, the Germans declared war on the Russians in order to formalise their pre-mobilisation procedures and they followed this up with a declaration of war on France and on Belgium in order to explain their invasion of those lands as well. By following protocol to the letter in the military and diplomatic sphere, the Germans announced loud and clear what they intended to do and while they had expected this frankness and sincerity to paint their efforts in a sympathetic, reasonable, civilised light, it had the opposite effect. The Russians were able to pose as the attacked victim, when its government had been preparing for the war, now at hand, for over a week in secret. 
The French, less guilty of mobilising preemptively and hurrying this process along, nonetheless had not helped to diffuse matters. And nor had the British, who never seemed to know what was happening and were distracted in any case by the Irish situation. Everything now proceeded according to what amounted to the preconceived plan. The Schlieven plan was still followed, even though it had been challenged and broken by the previous week's events, and the Russians reached German territory with a huge army far earlier than Berlin anticipated, which caused the high command to dig in on the Western Front once the initial advance to Paris was checked. You know the rest. Not only had the flawed Schlieffen plan been followed regardless of its shortcomings, but Germany's behaviour in early August did much more to paint it as the aggressor and disturber of the peace. It was a moniker which she will perhaps never fully shake, and it has helped, in the main, to obscure the significant responsibility which Germany's Austrian ally also shares for the catastrophe. This was the interpretation of the July Crisis and the outbreak of the First World War, which I provided in the July Crisis Anniversary Project. Along with some other caveats and explorations, it serves in my mind as the most sensible and reasonable account of why the war erupted. Within the depths of the formula which I had drawn out here exists some obvious other points. Nobody was talking to their rivals, nobody trusted anyone but their closest allies, and even then, not completely. Everyone assumed the worst of everyone else, everyone was armed to the teeth, nobody believed that anything other than conflict could bring satisfaction to questions about national honour and security, especially when justice through traditional means was denied or frustrated. It was as though, in the immortal words of Blackadder, it was too much effort not to fight the First World War. It would have required a different Europe with different leaders to preserve the peace. Germany and Austria would have to have been welcomed back into the state system and not made to feel like pariahs, and for that to happen, Britain would have to partake in the dismantling, or at least the reduction, in the potency of the alliance bloc system. So often it is lost in translation that Britain was not an ally of either France or Russia, but a partner in the Entente, a loosely defined arrangement which many Brits felt inherently uneasy about. Ties to the continent were not desired by those in London by and large, but the partnership did at least seem to pacify the Russians, Britain's major rival on the world stage, for many decades. The what-might-have-been questions are found when we look deeper and ask whether, if Franz Ferdinand had not been assassinated, might Anglo-Russian tensions have deteriorated once again? Could Anglo-German relations have improved now that the naval race was over and a genuine detente was underway? Could Franco-German relations ever be salved with the elephant of Alsace-Lorraine in the background? Any one of these threads could have profoundly changed our history and our understanding of the 20th century, but something which my July Crisis Anniversary project showed was that the outbreak of the First World War was anything but straightforward. The cast of characters, morass of issues and concepts to beat the band all tell a story which was once in an era and which defined an entire school of history. The key question from this episode which we can take is greatly significant. If, according to my findings, I believe Germany was not responsible, or at least not wholly or singularly responsible, for what followed, then does it not also follow that I believe Germany did not deserve to have the Treaty of Versailles placed upon her? Well, that question is difficult to address, but I'll do my best. Something which will come out of this series is the fact that Germany was not just being blamed for her role in starting the Great War during the Paris Peace Conference. 
She was also being blamed for her conduct throughout it, and above all, she was being punished for losing it. Most wars require a loser, and a conflict like the Great War demanded that a loser be nominated to pay the price which the winners wanted to demand. To some of these winners, well, they didn't look much like winners at all, and they needed the security which came along with punishing their defeated German foe. This was an insurance policy, as much as it was upheld to be justice for Germany's belligerent crimes. To others, Germany's defeat represented a chance to reap the benefits of a power vacuum overseas by taking apart Germany's overseas empire. To others, still, Germany's momentary weakness granted the opportunity to remake the world system of nations anew without its most formidable continental power intervening. Bear in mind that it wouldn't be until the 1960s that the question of German responsibility for the First World War above all was hammered home by the German historian Fritz Fischer. Until then, the Great War in Germany was seen as the clean war, as the honourable war, and even as the war which Germany fought on par with its European rivals. Germans were no better and no worse than the British, French or Russians, and since each state had its own tale to tell about where the war came from, the Treaty of Versailles could be upheld as but one aspect of this warped version of history which Germany's wartime enemies had tried to tell. Fischer's thesis, wherein Germany received the blame for imagining and pursuing the Great War to its full form, changed the narrative, and in many respects made us view history backwards. Indeed, the actual question of German war guilt, which would become so infamous, instill such a victim complex within the German people, and prove such fertile ground for Adolf Hitler to play upon was, you may be surprised to learn, far less potent in the beginning than it later became with the Fuhrer's cynical manipulation. The war guilt clauses which were inserted into the Treaty of Versailles were greeted with hostility by the Germans for sure, but they were also to be expected. It would hardly do for the Allies to claim that the Germans had been innocent or that everyone shared some kind of burden of blame for the Great War when they were creating the treaty. Rewriting history was what winners did, but even then, it was more egregious in the German mind that they had received such a limiting, punitive treaty where their land was taken away and ethnic Germans were left in newly imagined nation-states after fighting a fair war and apparently being promised a fair peace under the guise of the 14 points. The war guilt clauses were merely one aspect of what made the end peace treaty so unpalatable to the Germans, and furthermore, after all, the act of apportioning blame to either side had been ongoing since the war broke out, and books of varying colours, to denote the cache of selected government source documents, to paint a given picture, had been issued ad nauseum since 1914. It is important, of course, not to ignore the war guilt clause. We will certainly be examining it in more detail later, but it is also important not to make a mountain out of a molehill. To most Germans, the war guilt clause was not the central outrage. This outrage was the fact that they had expected fair treatment at the peace table and had instead been dictated to and forced to accept terms which they had never imagined the Allies would concoct. Thus, our task is not to assess whether the Germans deserved the Treaty of Versailles on account of their instigation of the Great War per se, since this question did not enter into the minds of those that argued for or against the treaty. Instead, we see broader questions like, what should be done about Germany and how can we punish Germany? The treaty was the punishment, as we said, for losing the war, not for starting it. 
Yet, this treaty was tasked with more than simply punishing the Germans. It was also expected that the treaty would remake the continent, solve the issues of nationalism and self-determination which had once plagued it, and deliver to the world the best vision of Europe which could be attained. It was because the Germans were so discontented with this new version of Europe that didn't hold them at the epicentre that they rebelled against its tenets. Had the blame for causing the war been the only such tenet, then the potency of Hitler's message would have been far less dangerous. Already though, even as the Weimar Republic was being born, the perceived unfairness of the German situation was loudly felt at home. We were the only ones punished, and we were the only ones blamed. An important fact which the automatic cause and effect narrative from World War I to II often obscures is one which reminds us that yes, the Germans were, by and large, the only ones to be comprehensively punished, and yes, the Germans were, by and large, the party which received the most blame. However, the Germans were also on the losing side, and they had had plans themselves for their foes in the event of a victory, plans which were felt and realised and seen in their terrible extent with the defeated Russians and Romanians in spring 1918, in those very punitive treaties. In summary then, this is all a roundabout way of me saying that while I don't believe the Germans were solely responsible for launching the Great War, I also don't believe that the Treaty of Versailles was all about the question of war guilt, and therefore I believe we can reasonably straddle the fence whereby we accept that Germany did not start the war, but that the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were in many respects fair. They were fair, as we shall discover, because the Germans happened to be on the losing side a status which pained them greatly, and which they did much to obscure in the years to come, but which, in the final analysis, could not be denied. By losing the war, the Germans filled the role taken up by so many others at the end of so many other wars, be it Napoleon, Charles XII of Sweden, King Charles II of Britain, even Hitler himself. The enduring question, then, isn't whether the Germans deserved the Treaty of Versailles because they started the war, but whether they deserved the Treaty of Versailles because they fought the First World War with great tenacity, ingenuity, ambition, aggression, and everything else, but that they lost in the end. Did Germany deserve to be so punished for this failure? And is it even possible or reasonable for us to argue that a different option existed to offer the Germans by the end of this whole terrible four-year process. It's not a straightforward question, but this question, rather than the more slippery one of war guilt, is the closest thing to a singular war aim which this project has. Did the Germans deserve what they got because they had played the game and lost? Well, if you're ready to join me after all this background, then I'm about ready to jump into this very loaded question. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.